on the morning of 4 June 1992 officers from the Central Bureau of Investigation the CBI walked into Harshad Mehta's home as is the typical protocol of a dawn raid on a suspect by a federal investigative body they searched the premises and after an almost day long dig told the Mehta brothers Harshad and Ashwin to come with them to the CBI office where they were placed under arrest Harshad Mehta was the prime suspect in the scandal that had just broken in India's banking and financial sector with the flashy broker being unable to square a huge outstanding with India's largest bank the State Bank of India soon the deputy managing director of the bank CL Kemani would also be in custody but these arrests as it turned out were just the tip of the iceberg a massive fraud had come to light where the SBI may have broken many protocols to provide Harshad Mehta and his brokerage firm an illegal way to siphon banking funds into the stock market funds which he used to manipulate the prices of the securities in the stocks themselves everyone from the income tax department to the banking regulator had been looking into the suspicious rise of the broker and of the market but it was the discovery of the irregularities by the SBI and its subsequent leak into the press which had brought the might of the state crashing down on this case the federal investigation agency CBI was placed in charge and a joint parliamentary committee was set up for a government investigation for all its flashy pronouncements and glitzy lifestyle that drew many into the allure of the stock markets and into his orbit Harshad Mehta is often remembered as the face of the 1992 stock scandal it's a compelling story his rise and fall and a story that we have been tracking over the last 3 episodes on this show but as it would turn out he was merely the first patient detected in a stock and bank scam epidemic that had silently spread through india's financial system over more than half a decade as debashish basu then a writer for the magazine business today told the new york times in 1992 the problem is not metha this is a unique time in the economic history of india when the old control structures are being torn down it is always at this moments that scamsters creep out of the woodwork Hello and welcome to Book of Sins, a podcast from the economist that delves into the economics of financial scams and tries to decipher how they could have taken place. I'm your host, Tariq Laskar. In season 1, we are looking back at the 1992 stock market scam in India and the role played by Harshad Mehta, a broker with the nickname Big Bull. This is episode 4, The Others. In a letter to the CBI where he defended himself and his firm's actions Harshad Mehta said neither I nor any of my companies have done anything in violation of any law all our transactions have been in accordance with prevailing practice a practice which is by no means secret or clandestine The statement conveniently hid the facts that some of his transactions involved outright fraud but it was more powerful for what it revealed than what it concealed in one fell swoop he clearly indicated that there were other brokers and banks who were doing the same things 
carrying out the same manipulations. It's just that he's the one who got caught first. The investigation would soon spread and trap a lot of those others in its net. And the domino effect would start from direct connections that were drawn between Harshad Mehta and the other financial institutions caught in the tangle. There were many other players, but in this episode, we will focus on about six key ones. Banks, their administrators, as well as brokers and operators who were the linchpins of some of those shady practices. This is the story of the dirty half a dozen. Harshad Mehta was asked to pay more than 500 crore rupees by the SBI at a short notice to cover up for his shortfall. He produced the money within 10 days. That money had come into his bank account at ANZ Grindlays. But the question that perplexed everyone was where had the money come from? As the character of Detective Lester Freeman played by actor Clark Peters in the acclaimed HBO TV show The Wire says, you follow drugs, you get drug addicts and drug dealers. But you start to follow the money and you don't know where the F it's going to take you. Any investigator worth their salt knows that follow the money is a powerful axiom. More so in a financial investigation. And as they trace the source of that money, it took them to some of India's most prestigious banks. Some of its biggest bank officials even the regulators and people connected with the highest echelons of the government itself. The first of those was Manohar Fairwani. A story in the newspaper Indian Express, two weeks after the April story in the Times of India from Sujata Dalal and R. Srinivasan brought the scam to light, exposed the fact that the money in Harshad Mehta's account had come from the National Housing Bank. The National Housing Bank was a subsidiary of the Reserve Bank of India and Manohar Fairwani was the bank's chairman. Before his current post, he had been at the helm of India's state-owned mutual fund company, the Unit Trust of India or UTI. Given the sheer size at which the fund used to buy shares from the share market, Fairwani was the man who was originally nicknamed the Big Bull, a title that Harshad would inherit. Ferwani denied he had anything to do with the transfer of money to Harshad Mehta's account from NHB. But the coincidence was hard to ignore. The money had come in just when Harshad Mehta had needed to settle his SBI gap. Ferwani resigned three days later after the story broke. Tragically, within two weeks, he was dead, apparently, of a heart attack. One can only imagine the speculation if this had occurred in the social media speculation supercharged era that we now live in. However, it had become clear that NHB was a party to the scam. Whether or not that was known to its now deceased director doesn't really matter. And so were other banks whose shady operations were slowly coming to light. An India Today cover story in 1992 on the scam said, The scam got caught out when the RBI sent sleuths to check books for discrepancies. There were too many banks selling securities they didn't have and too many banks paying for securities they didn't receive. The net appears to be very wide. It was wide indeed. There was Hitan Dalal, 
who was Citibank and Standard Chartered's biggest security broker. And it would be in Standard Chartered where the next thread of the scam would be unveiled. So what exactly was going on at Standard Chart? Play for play, it was exactly the same game that Harshad Mehta was playing at SBI. After the SBI story broke, Standard Chartered started checking its books. First, they found out that a sum of rupees 250 crores, which they had paid to Hitan Dalal to buy government securities, was effectively missing because the money had been paid but the securities had not been received. As we know from the Harshad Mehta story, this in and of itself isn't outright fraud, even if the practice was highly unusual and violated RBI guidelines. The bank was not supposed to pay money directly to the broker. He then had handed over the bank receipt to the Standard Chartered Bank, which showed that another bank held those securities, which he promised to deliver. And as we learned in the last episode, this was sometimes accepted as interim confirmation of the transaction. But now, with the reconciliation underway, Standard Chartered needed either the physical securities or their entry into the subsidiary general ledger, which would tally with the RBI's own records at the public debt office, like we saw in the last episode. Or, quite simply, they just needed the money back. The problem was that the bank which had supposedly given the bank receipt saying it had the securities was the Bank of Karad. Now, if you've not heard of the Bank of Karad, but have heard of Stanchart, there is probably a good reason why. Bank of Karad's capital was just 4.5 million rupees. Its asset book wasn't very big either. It definitely was not anywhere close to rupees 250 crores or 2.5 billion. So, how exactly had they conjured up a receipt claiming possession of securities for that amount? The answer is as simple as it is devastating. That bank receipt was fake. Just like the kinds Harshad Mehta had used. One of the directors of the bank was Bhupen Dalal, a well-known investment banker who ran a money management firm, Bhupen Champaklal Devidas, or BCD. Hitan Dalal was his distant cousin. Stanchart CEO Parvesh Singh Nat called up Bhupen Dalal to inform him of this anomaly name of the bank that Bhupen was the single largest private shareholder and the director of. Soon, they would find that the gap was actually larger than 900 crore rupees or 9 billion rupees. That was almost twice as big a hole as Harshad Mehta's with the SBI. The scam kept getting bigger. Stanchart wanted the money covered and Hitendalal, just like Harshad Mehta had claimed, said that he could produce the money or the equivalent bank receipts. He then said he would bring the bank receipts from a bank called Metro Cooperative Bank and sure enough delivered almost 600 crore rupees worth of those within the week. It appeared as if Standard Chartered was able to stem the tide for now. But it wouldn't surprise you to know by now what comes next. Those bank receipts 
from Metrobank were fake as well. Metrobank had only one branch in India and its capital was a mere 1.4 million rupees. Essentially, the Bank of Karad and Metrobank were being used as currency printing machines, churning out fake BRs for securities they did not own. The currency was being taken out by the brokers from the banks against those fake BRs. But where did the money go? That answer would come forward soon enough. The money was never intended to be used to buy any government securities at all. It had first gone into the account of Hidendalal and then to a man named Abhay Naruttam. An old associate of Bhupendalal's, Naruttam used that money to play the stock market, much like Harshad Mehta had. The only difference was people like Naruttam and Hitendalal had no fancy theories to spout and did not flaunt their cars. They did not give talks or get interviewed by magazines like Harshad Mehta did. There were two more people that the CBI later identified had also been defrauding Stanchart, J.P. Gandhi and Tejuruya. Incidentally, both of them had links to Bhupendalal. And most damning of all, Tejuruya was the director of the Metro Cooperative Bank. The bank which had produced the fake PRs that Hitendalal brought in to plug the gap at Standard Chartered. As these things came to light, Bhupendalal initially denied any involvement in orchestrating this scam. But behind the scenes, he, along with Hitendalal, Tejuruya, Abhay Naruttam, surreptitiously met Stanchart Top Brass to try and settle the matter of the missing money in the bank's account. Once the central bank, once the CBI got involved, they suggested Stanchart to file a police complaint against the people it was accusing of defrauding them. The CBI told Stanchart that they won't aren't part of CBI's jurisdiction since they were only limited to public sector banks. Stanchart, in the meantime, still held out hope that they could settle the whole matter privately. But when the Gang of Five, as Bupen and Hitendalal, J.P. Gandhi, Avai Narutam and Tejuruya had been dubbed, refused to play ball and kept stalling negotiations or deflecting blame and liability during their discussions to try and settle the matter, Stanchart finally ran out of patience. The bank filed a criminal complaint on June 20th, 1992. Bhupendalal had seemed to be the common link to all of these transactions, conducting a secret symphony of money siphoning through his associates while seeming an arm length away. The CBI and the bank figured it out soon enough. Gandhi, Naruttam, Hitendalal and Bhupendalal would be arrested by the CBI on July 2nd, 1992. Meanwhile, something similarly afoul was afoot at Andhra Bank, who were sitting on bad loans aplenty from a firm but Fair Growth. Fair Growth's founder was a banking wunderkind. B. Ratnakar, a man so dynamic he became the chairman and managing director of Canara Bank at the age of 46. 
the youngest ever to hold that post in a public sector bank. He soon earned the nickname Super Banker, not least because of feats like the one he pulled off when he was in Madras in 1972. Canada Bank used to offer rupees 100 as an incentive for rupees 100,000 worth of deposits brought into the branch. When Ratnakar was in charge of the Madras branch, he brought in so, so much in terms of deposits that the incentive alone would have amounted to rupees 200,000. The head office did not want to pay such a high incentive and immediately withdrew the scheme and actually announced a flat incentive of rupees 25,000 for that branch. Ratnakar was succeeding beyond anybody's wildest dreams. By the time he ended his tenure as chairman of the Canada Bank, the bank was earning almost as much in profit as the State Bank of India, even though in terms of size, it was barely one-tenth of the SBI. Again, if you've been listening closely to our earlier episodes, you probably already suspect that Canara Bank was playing fast and loose with the rules. And you would be right. Their portfolio management scheme had enough irregularities for the RBI to actually ban it at one point. They simply restarted it under another name. In 1990, Ratnaka started Fair Growth Financial Services after his retirement from the bank. And he had wanted it to expand to become a supermarket-like chain countrywide for financial services. However, its visionary died of a heart attack in February 1992. But the company, under management of aggressive executives handpicked by Ratnakar, continued their warp speed expansion. A lot of the expansion was funded by borrowed money from places such as Andhra Bank. How the scheme worked was simple. Essentially, Andhra Bank's subsidiary, Andhra Bank Financial Services Limited, ran the same kind of shady PMS operations some of the other banks like SBI were running. The only trick here was that a lot of these banks had started opening non-banking financial corporations as their subsidiaries because the RBI had recently started allowing banks to do so. And these non-banking financial corporation subsidiaries of these banks became the conduits through which they could carry out these activities. These NBFCs would borrow money or take deposits from public sector units and lend them to fair growth who deploy it in the stock markets to try and generate big returns. Of course, to try and generate those big returns, sometimes they would also try to manipulate the market prices themselves. And what comes next shouldn't surprise you at all by now. Andhra Bank subsidiary was also lending money to Hitendalal, Stanchart and the National Housing Bank. As the Harshanatha side of the scam broke, the markets were hugely impacted and share prices crashed, especially in the scripts, which Harshad Mehta was buying quite a lot. The result of this was that the gung-ho portfolios that people like Fair Growth were playing with also crashed, and those reckless loans had come home to roost. When Andhra Bank asked Fair Growth for the money, it turned out Fairgrowth never really held the securities it had pledged 
as collaterals. They had been planning to play the markets and get them later. They had their own Harshad Mehtas, two brokers called Pallav Sheth and Ajay Kayan who were helping them play the manipulation game. In the meantime, Fair Growth had given Andhra Bank security receipts, the stock market equivalent of bank receipts. And just like the ones Harshad Mehta had given to the SBI and Hiten Dalal had given to Stanchart from Metro Bank, these receipts were also forged and fake. The result was that Andhra Bank Financial Services filed a criminal complaint, just like Stanchard had. The ultimate upshot, the CBI arrested the Fair Growth Managing Director on 7 September 1992. So who exactly were these people? Bupen Dalal, J.P. Gandhi, Avay Narottam, Hithen Dalal, Pallav Sheth, Ajay Kayan. They were all brokers. But that is not the trait that connects them. What connects them is that they were all part of a handful of brokerage firms which formed a cabal that controlled the interbank market and had an outsized influence on the stock market. They were incumbents in a market where the barriers to entry were high. Harshad Mehta in his initial days was an outlier for this very reason. He had found it difficult to break into the money market mainly because of the existence of these powerful brokers there in the first place who did not want somebody else budging in onto their turf. It was an oligopolistic situation, a scenario where a market has very few players and they often band together to exercise the market power by being able to distort prices and extract profits at the expense of others. In economics, they are called supernormal profits. Financial markets are ideally supposed to be perfectly competitive, where no one player wields too much power, information flows fairly freely and frictionlessly, and transaction costs are very low. In perfectly competitive markets, supernormal profits should not be really possible. But the Indian financial markets at that point were anything but perfectly competitive. It was because of two paradoxic things. A lot of regulations, but at the same time, a very lax implementation of those regulations within banks and financial institutions. This meant it was hard for an outsider to enter, but very easy for insiders to get away with bending the rules. It was like a raucous house party going on in an apartment that's locked from the inside. Even if the neighbors wanted to stop the party, they can't really get in and tell the residents to stop it. And to make matters worse, the building supervisor is attending the party. Under political pressure, investigative agencies and regulators had moved fast to catch as many suspects as they could make a prosecution case against during the scam. But it was really after the joint parliamentary committee hearings began in September 1992 that it became evident how debauched that party truly was. And as much as we have talked about Harshad Mehta's audacity and bravado, it pales in comparison to the death star of this whole operation, a certain foreign bank of very high standing but very shaky morals. 
next time on Book of Saints, a visit to the Death Star. Book of Saints is written and presented by me, Tariq Laskar. The executive producer of Book of Saints is Jayant Lanjapa. Research for this episode has drawn from numerous sources, but the two main ones are the book Scam by Suchet Dalal and Devashish Basu and the cover story about the security scam published in India Today magazine on May 31st, 1992. The background music is by Lee Rosewell. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening. It helps for the podcast to get discovered. And once again, thank you for listening. This is an economist presentation.